All right. All human life is rhythmic. Our bodies have their own rhythms, oscillating between activity and sleep, alternating between this world of day and night, and we construct patterns of our personal and corporate existence. We measure out the hours, the days, the weeks, the months, the years. Um, we organize into periods of work and rest. We divide this year into four seasons. Well, maybe like, what, two, two and a half for us in California. It rained this week. That's like, it's kind of a big deal. Um, corporations work on a fiscal year. The, those of us with kids, we mostly operate around the school calendar. Uh, but did we know we should by now already that the church too has a seasonal cycle that begins today, the first uh, Sunday of Advent. So this is the way I imagine it, right? Imagine going on a hike where the trail is really tough to follow because it's not well marked. Has this ever happened to you before? How's it feel? Yeah, it's like, yeah, Brad's like, it feels great. I love getting lost. <laughs> Trust me, when it goes on for like more than like an hour or two, you're going to change that answer, right? So it, it can be a little, more than a little bit scary when you can't find your way or you don't know where you're going. Like, where's Eric? Eric, this happened to us. Remember in the Cespi? It was like 100 plus degrees, and Eric and I lost the trail because um, it got washed out in this like El Nino year a few years back. Um, and it took us like half hour, hour to just to find the trail. And we had a great time, but that particular moment of the hike was not fun because I ran out of water. I didn't bring enough, right? So, but how easy would it have been if Eric, we were hiking, and someone had placed a cairn or a pile of rocks on the trail where we were going, right? Would have been a lot easier. It would have helped us to find our way. So we're going to put that picture. Can we put the picture up? It's up? All right, so there's a cairn, right? Anyone who's ever seen those before, they kind of help us find our way. And so I started thinking about the season of Advent a little bit like uh, this pile of rocks for us that was set up by the saints who walked before us, right? That helps us find our way through this unusually crazy time of the year that we call the month of December, right? By a show of hands, how many of us are already, their life is already getting a little hectic? Am I the, I'm not the only one, am I? <laughs> All right, because I'm like, I'm sweating it out already uh, with this big move and Thanksgiving and Christmas coming in, whatever, right? Life gets a little bit crazy. And when life gets crazy, we can easily get out of balance, easily get out of whack, right? Our natural rhythms get disrupted. Advent can actually help us with that if we don't blow through it in order to get to Christmas. This is the hard part. It really is. In Advent, we wait and we prepare our hearts for the birth and for the eventual return of Jesus, the light of the world. But the truth is, if you're like me, you don't like to wait, right? I mean, some people maybe. I don't want to wait. This is why I have an Amazon Prime addiction. I've gone through this <laughs> with you guys before. This is my confession. So it's like Katie says that every day over the last three weeks has been like Christmas for Rob, right? Because <laughs> with the move over here, we needed to get a bunch of stuff. So I literally had stuff showing up on our door every day for the last three weeks, right? Like our poor UPS driver must think like someone in this house has a problem, you know? <laughs> um, I think maybe I do. I'm not sure. Like last year for Lent, for the first time, I gave up Amazon Prime for Lent. I think I'm going to have to do that this year too because I don't think I'm any better. Actually, I might be worse. Um, so if patience is a struggle, right? You want to know, how do I do 
in the waiting. Like I just look around and I'm like, patience seems to be in short supply in the world today. I don't know if anyone feels like I do. But if you want to test your waiting skills, if you don't have your real ID yet and you need to get it, <laughs> just head on over to the DMV without an appointment and then report back to me how much you enjoyed the waiting. Heck, get an, get an appointment for all I care. You're still going to be there for the better part of the day, right? This is going to let you know like how well, how much do I like to wait? How, how well do I do in the waiting? And so the waiting of Advent, honestly, it can be hard because we experience the tension of uh, our lives, right? The tension between the hardships and the difficult things in our life with this hope and joy that we have in Jesus and that we experience during the Christmas season. There's a real tension there. So when we walk through Advent, we're holding on to these two things. We're holding on to hope, but we're also holding on to the things that are, are difficult for us, the places that we hurt, right? And so this is where we're going to find the prophet Jeremiah this morning in our biblical text, which is why I think this story can be told with so much integrity. This is why I like the story, because it doesn't minimize the difficult things in life. We pray with me. Speak to us, Lord. We ask God that you would speak to us in the waiting and in the watching, in the hoping, the longing, the joy, the sorrow, the singing. God, speak to us by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. Here's Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18. As long as nobody comes through... <laughs> We're going to be okay. Those are just some weights. There's some really strong guy. Mike, it's not, I thought it might be you, but you're, since you're in here, some really strong guys dropping giant weights. Um, all right, here's, here's the word of God from Jeremiah. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to make grain offerings, and to make sacrifices for all time. The word of the Lord. And so the prophet Jeremiah begins his ministry during the reign of King Josiah, the same king that Pastor Jennifer shared with us last week. She introduced us to, uh, to Josiah as the one who brought the people back to the book and back to faithfulness. But unfortunately for Jeremiah, he worked mainly during one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. So things are going to get interesting. Jeremiah lived about two miles outside the city gates of Jerusalem, which put him in kind of an unusual position. He was both an insider in his community, but he was also an outsider, literally living just outside those city gates. So Jeremiah was a man, and this, this may be the, the crux of the whole thing that's going to drive what we're going to talk about this morning, is that Jeremiah is a man who's both deeply troubled, but also deeply hopeful. Deeply troubled and deeply hopeful. He's troubled by the horrible injustices that were all around him. But he was hopeful because when he looked around, he still saw that God was actively at work, even in the midst of tragedy. He remained hopeful about the future. 
So before we get to the hopeful part, which is really where our text landed, we need to walk through the historical context of our story. Without it, we're not going to understand why this hope was even necessary in the first place. And geographically, Israel sat on the middle of a trade route between two massive empires, the Babylonian Assyrian Empire on one side and Egypt on the other. They sit right in the middle. That's a bad place to be if you're the little kid on the block. Okay? So they're in constant danger, constant danger of being attacked, constant danger of being conquered, subjected into slavery, just wiped off the face of the earth. This was their position. And after centuries of unjust and bad kings, after centuries of this growing gap between the rich and the poor, after centuries of corruption and exclusion, the people of Israel are finally, they're kind of like, they're left to suffer the natural consequences of their own actions. And here's what's happening historically. Nebuchadnezzar, he has a great name. You want to try to say it? Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, it's fun. Um, his army was coming. It was on its way, marching toward Jerusalem. They knew they were in serious trouble. Foolishly, King Zedekiah, the king of Israel here, foolishly appeals to another tyrannical empire for help. He reaches out to the empire on the other side, Egypt. He says, we need some help. Babylonians, they're coming. Egypt sends some people... Uh, didn't last long, they wiped out the Egyptians, and they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, right? So Jeremiah had spoken out loudly against this idea of employing their former oppressors. Think what's happening here. They're trying to employ their former oppressors, the Egyptians, the ones that enslaved them, and they're employing them to help them. Jeremiah says, it's a terrible idea. The king doesn't listen. Not only does he not listen, he actually throws Jeremiah in prison, accused him of desertion, um, falsely, of course, um, but the, the siege resumes. This siege is hard to overstate what a living nightmare this was for the people of Jerusalem. When the walls of the city were breached, this is really, this is just absolutely mind-boggling. When the walls of the city were breached, the people were so desperate, they knocked their own homes down in order to use the rubble and the bodies of the deceased to build defensive barriers to keep these invaders out. That's how desperate things got. Now, how hopeless is this situation? Okay, you see this situation that Jeremiah is speaking into. And so he's speaking truth to power. He begs the king to spare the lives of his people. Just surrender to King Nebuchadnezzar, and this whole thing would be over. But we know from history that Power does not welcome truth very often. King doesn't listen, throws him in prison, and from the confines of his imprisonment, Jeremiah does one of the strangest things that we see in all of Scripture. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. I thought about this quite a bit. He bought a plot of land. Your face, you should be like, your face should be like, huh? <laughs> like, why in the midst of a siege, why would Jeremiah buy a plot of land in the city of Jerusalem? Any thoughts? Like, I racked my brain until I, you know, I figured it out. Any thoughts on, like, yeah, Adam, what do you think? Faith, hope in the future, a belief that it was yeah. going to turn around for the better. Yeah, that's, that, okay, we're done. <laughs> Have a great rest of your weekend. Like, that's pretty much, that's pretty much the rest of the sermon right there. Um, like, I'm like, who does this, right? And you just, Adam, you just totally nailed it. Like, who does this? And we, we think about what possible reasons are, and that's what he does. What he's actually doing is he's enacting a living parable, a, enfleshed a living 
parable. He has something. He has something he needs to teach that he needs to communicate to people. And that is exactly what he was trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate to the people of Jerusalem um, that this wasn't the end, right? There was going to be a return. They were going to rebuild, and things were going to return to normal, right? And so, of course, everybody listening to him, like was looks on your faces when I said he bought a plot of land, everybody listening to him must have thought he completely lost his mind, right? In the midst of tragedy, God is sending this message of hope, a message of healing for the city of Jerusalem that said someday, even though everything right now seems lost, even though everything seems hopeless right now, there will be healing. There will be restoration. There'll be return, rebuilding, um, and things that were broken down would be restored. It's this living parable that said there is hope even in the midst of suffering. It's exactly what he's trying to communicate. So we know David's descendants, they had occupied the throne of Israel for hundreds of years. When Babylon destroyed the city of Jerusalem, they burned the temple, they exiled the people. David's line was thought to be lost forever. This, this, should, have been, this should have been it. And the people were in such disarray, um, losing absolutely everything, that these promises of God, they seem just like a distant memory. These promises, that they're gone. They're not thinking about these. And we get to his, um, his like, image of hope. And it's a picture. It's a little stump of a tree. Oh, there it is. That will, kind of a picture like that, right? If anyone's ever experienced this before, I have. Actually, I shared a couple weeks ago about a tree that I cut down to a two-foot stump um, instead of taking it out and planting a new one. Um, and it took a while, but it regrew. Um, and that's what we have here in this picture. And this is the image that, that Jeremiah chooses to, to leave us with, right? That God is promising something, a Messiah, a new man, a new ruler, a new king. And so when we look at this passage that we read, uh, we see that there's some pretty cool stuff about this new king. The new king would come from the lineage of David, a line thought to be lost after this exile. David was the king who united the tribes of Israel. He was the king who moved the capital city back to Jerusalem. He was the king who moved the Ark of the Covenant, got it out of retirement, and put it in the capital city. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, yeah. right? And so he was the king who uh, like recentered. Jerusalem's life around the worship of God. He did a lot of, he did a lot of good stuff. Um, it's that David. And so Jeremiah says, well, he didn't really know when this king was going to arrive, uh, but he knew that while many of Israel's kings were greedy and unjust, and this is where we've been all fall looking at some really difficult stuff, this king's administration would practice two things, righteousness and justice. Two things, central things to this king's administration. And then the scripture says, he says that salvation and safety would arrive with this coming king and that this king wouldn't just sit on the throne for a little while, but for eternity. And finally, we get to this little clue of the vastness of God's, uh, of this king's reign. We get a glimpse of who this new king would be for. This was my big learning in studying the story. And it was definitely the thing I'm most excited about when it comes to hope. And the clue is in three simple words. You ready? In the land. No? It's not working for anybody else? All right, well, give me a chance. This word, in the land, that I'm pretty excited about, um, you know what it means in the Hebrew, better translation? It means in all the earth. 
We're talking about a particular city, the city of Jerusalem. And here Jeremiah's hope goes well beyond that, right? And this is what I learned. Uh, the king would execute justice and righteousness in the land, in all the earth. Jeremiah's vision of restoration is vast. It's expansive. This healing and restoration would not just be for the people of Jerusalem. It's bigger than a whole nation. It's not tribal. It's not for some at the exclusion of others. It doesn't exclude based on anything. It's widening the circle of inclusion. It encompasses everything and everyone. Jeremiah's hope is this king, this king's reign would be for in the land, for all the earth, for the earth and all things in it. This king would be for all creation, for all people, for all the earth, for every living thing. This salvation uh, that was coming for all of creation was on its way in this coming king that Jeremiah is talking about. Now, historically, we have a big problem. Centuries go by. This king hasn't arrived. Things were still bad. Injustice still ruled. <laughs> and the people were still waiting for this king. That is until a baby was born in Bethlehem. And this is why our gospel writers go to such great lengths to explain the connection between Jesus and King David. Two-thirds of Matthew's opening chapter is devoted to Jesus' family tree. Not one of the most exciting texts we could read. Have you ever, Dale, have you ever preached this, Jennifer? Has anyone ever preached? You have? I want to hear that sermon. Did you make it fun? All right, next week. Sweet. You're on. I'll, total, I'll take you up on that, right? It's this chapter that you don't hear preached because it's this list of names that most preachers, except for Dale, um, like, they don't want to have to try to pronounce all those names in public, you know what I mean? Um, but this is how the gospel begins. Matthew's gospel says, an account of genealogy, of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. See what he's doing here. Luke does the same thing. He makes a big deal about where Jesus was born. It's no accident that Jesus is born in the city of David called Bethlehem, okay? And so we see what the gospel writers were trying to do. They were trying to link the birth of this king with Jesus. It's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to say that, you know that, you know that king that Jeremiah told us was coming in the prophets, right? That king is here. That king is here in Jesus, and so when this king arrived, he would bring salvation, the scripture says. The Hebrew word for saved is Yasha. Okay, want to try it? Yasha, say it. Yasha. Okay. 500 years after God Yashad, the people of Jerusalem, is that a word? <laughs> Saved the people of Jerusalem from this Babylon, this exile that we're talking about. A child would be born in the city of David named Yeshua. God saves Salvation was on its way in Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the prophets. This is a hope worth waiting for. And so hope in Jesus is not, and this is, this is the stuff I think that, ha, you know, this is where you have to come to Scripture with integrity, and I think this is what this passage does of Jeremiah, that hope in Jesus isn't this Pollyannish hope. It's not pretending to see the world through rose-colored glasses. It's really important for me. It acknowledges the joy and the sorrow, it acknowledges the hope and the suffering that exists together. 
And this type of hope never turns a blind eye to injustice. Hope always exists in the middle of this tension, this tension between the way things currently are and the way things will one day be. This is the tension of the Advent season. So we're gonna finish with a question. We're gonna consider this question. When you look at the future, are you troubled? Are you hopeful? Or are you like Jeremiah, both troubled and hopeful? So I can relate to the prophet. I actually had a laundry, like a list of things that I'm you know, irritated about, about the world, right? I took them out. And that's not the way to finish the sermon on hope, you know? But the list is there. Like, we talk about this stuff all the time, the things that make life difficult, hard, right? And if you were to allow those lists that we have to just be the only thing in there, we can easily slip into despair. So I share Jeremiah's hope as well. Now, we have an advantage that Jeremiah didn't have. Jeremiah lived in the time before the king. He lived 500 years before the king arrived. We live on the other side, right? And so Jeremiah was waiting for this king to arrive. We're waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom to arrive. And so it's this in-between time that Jeremiah invites us to, I think two things, we could probably find more, but we're gonna keep it really simple. Jeremiah invites us to do two things, to wait and to work, to wait and to work. We wait, but we wait expectantly. We wait for God to come through. We wait for God to fulfill God's promises. We wait for God to right wrongs. But here's the thing. It's always really important in Scripture. The waiting is never passive. It's not sitting on the couch, you know, with the remote. Uh, That's not the kind of waiting we're talking about. Waiting isn't passive. This kind of waiting requires something of us. Like when I thought about it, I was like, it requires like a leaning into or a tuning into, a turning around, or a reaching for. It's a waiting that requires a response from each of us, because it's an active waiting. In the waiting, there is work to be done. And so this is what made me think, right? I, I can't help but wonder if God isn't also waiting for us while we wait for God, expecting something of us. Perhaps God is waiting for us to join in the same work that the King Jesus is already doing in the world, working for equity and justice, righting wrongs, initiating works of peace and reconciliation. Maybe God is waiting expectantly for us to respond in faithfulness and generosity in the land, in all the earth, for all living things. And so we wait because we know that the kingdom is not yet complete. And we work because the kingdom of God is built one act of love at a time. In Advent, we acknowledge this palpable tension between the way things are and the way things will one day be, or the way things ought to be, however you want to think about it. And so the birth of a baby may not seem like the obvious answer. Would this have been anyone's plan? Like, oh, let's just send a baby to take care of righting all the wrongs of the world, right? Like, that's not the way I would have drawn it up. Good thing, I'm not God, right? This was God's answer. 
And so the baby, uh, the birth of this baby may not seem like the obvious answer, but it was God's answer that Jesus is the hope of the world. And so we have these two images, right? The one from Jeremiah, this righteous branch coming from the stump of a dead tree, which if you're with us for the rest of Advent, you'll see, uh, you'll see this one talked about more. This is a really important theme. But we also have that little flicker of that flame over there, the candle of hope that the winds lit, right? We have these two images of hope. And so may we remain hopeful for the future. May we, like the prophet, embody a tangible, real hope for all those that we meet this Advent season and beyond. So we wait and we work. So don't rush through Advent to get to Christmas, but allow this season or the God of this season to be your guide. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the image of a tiny green branch in the flicker of a flame on a candle continue to inspire us to place our hope in you. God, we ask that you would walk through us, with us, through the ups and downs of this season as we wait for you to fulfill all your promises. God, give us the courage and the strength to join you in your work. God, the work that you're already doing that you beckon and call us to join with you in that work, to embody hope to the world. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.